Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop event podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. On Friday, December 7th, 2018, Adam Johnson joined author and faculty member Erica Krauss for Inside the Writer's Studio. The Writer's Studio is one of Denver's signature reading series, bringing rising and nationally recognized authors to town for discussions, readings, book signings, and workshops. Adam Johnson is the Pulitzer Prize-winning author of The Orphan Master's Son, a provocative thriller set in modern-day North Korea. His most recent collection, Fortune Smiles, received the National Book Award and the Story Prize. Johnson's previous books are Emporium, a short story collection, and the novel Parasites Like Us. He teaches creative writing at Stanford University and lives in San Francisco with his wife and children. I'm Andrea Dupree. I'm the program director here at Lighthouse Writers Workshop, and I'm so glad you're all here. Is everybody here for Inside the Writer Studio with Adam Johnson and Erica Kraus? Is that what your flashbacks to when you were in the wrong class? Are you in the, anybody in the wrong class? You're looking for the impressionist art. Um, I am so glad that we have this event. I started, I think, um, e-stalking Adam a couple years ago, trying to get him to come out here. After Erica, in fact, said, you have to read The Orphan Master's Son. And even though the whole world was saying, you have to read The Orphan Master's Son, I didn't read it until Erica said. Um, And have you guys read it? We should spoil it for everyone else. Um, Okay, I won't. Mike didn't want me to, so I won't. But anyway, this is a treat for us. I had to do some serious name dropping. I dropped names from, like, Boston to right here in this room, Seth Brady Tucker to Erica. Everybody's name was dropped, and and we finally got him here. Um, And I was reading the collection Fortune Smiles. You guys read it? And there's that story with the writer who won the Pulitzer for his uh, North Korea novel. And I noticed there were, it's from the point of view of the wife, and she says, you know, all these adoring fans come to all his readings now, and these kind of, these Korean socialites uh, cozy up to him. And I was like, well, Denver has to represent what can we what can we do? We might not have, you know, the socialites. We have social climbers or um, mountain climbers. And we have a ton of adoring fans. Look at y'all. I mean, this is great. Um, okay, so tonight I'm going to introduce Erica, lovely Erica. She's going to introduce Adam. He's going to read. Then they're going to sit down and have a little chat. And we're going to listen to their chat, which is kind of strange, but really delightful and lovely. And so they'll do that, and then we'll open it up to you guys. So, Erica, she is the hardest working writer in all show business, (laughs) book business, among the hardest working. I made the mistake of... um, writing in a card to her that she was the reason the word indefatigable was invented. And then I realized, actually, I'm realizing now, I don't really know how that's pronounced. (laughs) She's tireless. She's not only an outstanding teacher, having won our own Beacon Award for Teaching Excellence a couple years ago. You guys, that's, that's a rarer honor than winning an Oscar. There have only been like 10 or 12. 
and she totally deserved it. She serves as a mentor in the book project. She's the best-selling author of the story collection, Come Up and See Me Sometime in the Novel Contenders. Her work has been published in The New Yorker, The Atlantic, One Story, Plowshares, and elsewhere. Name, name the place she's been there. She's got two books coming out sometime in the next few years. <laughs> from Flatiron Books. Uh, one is called Save Me, a collection of short stories, and maybe you've glimpsed some of them. They've been coming out fairly regularly. And Tell Me Everything, a memoir of a private eye, which you may have seen excerpted in Granta, um, which she's already had an option for, for TV development. So amazing. So now all she has to do is write it, write both of them, which she will do. She's alarmingly talented, as you all know. Everyone, please welcome to the stage Ms. Erica Krauss. Thank you, Andrea. You are awesome and also a little bit of a liar, but we love that about you. Um, so it is my genuine pleasure to introduce Adam Johnson for you here today. Um, and thank you, everyone, for coming out and being um, a part of this event. When I was a younger reader, I began separating writers into good soul writers and bad soul writers. The bad soul writers might be alarmingly talented um, and skilled, but and sometimes even more so than the good soul writers because they didn't have to worry about things like... Um, human relationships or compassion, but, um, and they might get a lot of acclaim and status, but they'll never do what the good soul writers do, which is they write those books that capture your imagination. Um, the books that you want tucked beside you in your coffin when you die, the good soul writers write your favorite books, the books that you don't know how you've ever lived without and the stories that change your life. Adam Johnson is a good soul writer. I know this because I've read his work again and again, and each time it makes me a better person, reader, and writer. When I finished The Orphan Master's Son the first time, I didn't want to let it go, so I carried it around with me for weeks like a blankie. <laughs> it captured me in a way that few other books ever have, and I feel comfortable calling it, in my opinion, a masterpiece. His short stories also continue to astound every time I read a new one. His gifts spread in every direction, and as readers, we're lucky to share in them. I first met Adam at the Breadloaf Writers Conference, and then at the Sewanee Writers Conference the year afterward. Each conference lasted two weeks, so I spent a total of a month in his company over two consecutive years, and then never again until about four o'clock today. Um, but what I most love about Adam is that he is the same person, nevertheless, and I'll still call you his homie. It's a title I kind of cherish. Um, despite the crazy amount of stuff that he's accomplished in the decades since I've seen him last, such as, buckle up, Adam now teaches creative writing at Stanford University and lives in San Francisco with his wife and their three kids. He published four acclaimed books, the short story collection Emporium, the novel Parasites Like Us, a second novel, The Orphan Master's Son, which won the 2013 Pulitzer Prize, and a second short story collection, Fortune Smiles, which won the Story Prize and the 2015 National Book Award. Adam has also won the Sunday Times EFG Award, which is called the Richest Short Story Award in the World for his short story Nirvana. 
He's been celebrated in the Best American Short Stories and Best American Non-Required Reading, and has been been published in places like Esquire, Harper's, Playboy, GQ, The Paris Review, Granta, Tin House, and The New York Times, among other places. He's received a Guggenheim, a Whiting Writers Award, and an NEA Fellowship. In fact, Adam has won every major literary prize with the exception of the Nobel Prize for Literature. That said, the last writer to sit across from me at a writer's studio did win a Nobel very shortly afterward. We know it was the interview that did it. I mean, they say it was his books, but they're lying. Um, So, Adam, you're welcome in advance. We're so happy and grateful to have you here with us tonight. Thank you so much for coming to the Lighthouse Writers Studio. Please, everyone, give a warm Colorado welcome for Adam Johnson. Hey, uh, Andrea, those were such kind words. Well, I feel very welcome here. Uh, And I kind of got to meet a few people, and um, it seems like uh, it's a pretty wonderful place to care about literature. So thank you for coming out here tonight. And um, uh, I'm just going to read a couple pages to you. And when I came in, uh, Kurt Cobain was on. And I don't know if... That was a coincidence. <laughs> um, but I do believe in things working that way somehow. So uh, I'm not going to bore you uh, with a long reading, but I was just going to read just a couple pages from uh, a story uh, in which Kurt Cobain does make an appearance. But um, we don't meet him just right here at the beginning. But I'm curious, just. Just in case, I did uh, read this story one time, and afterwards someone came up to me and they said, I love that story. Who's Kurt Cobain? (laughs) So it was nice to know the story still worked. Um, But can someone help anyone in the audience who might not know who Kurt Cobain is? Who who is he? Lead singer of Nirvana. Nirvana. What happened to him? He killed himself. himself. Don't ever kill yourself. (laughs) Um, Really, really. Um, there's been a rash, hasn't there? Yeah? Okay. I'm just going to read four pages. Um, and can you hear me in the back? Yes. Okay, all right. Do you have seats back there? Okay. You can come sit down up front. There's people standing back there. There's two there and one there. Two, one. Yeah. Three people. Come. If you sit in the front row, young people, you get A's. <laughs> Too much pressure, I understand. All right, I'm just going to read a little bit of the short story titled Nirvana. It's late, and I can't sleep. I raise a window for some spring Palo Alto air, but it doesn't help. In bed, eyes open, I hear whispers, which makes me think of the president, because we often talk in whispers. I know the whispering sound is really just my wife, Charlotte, who listens to Nirvana on her headphones all night and tends to sleep mumble the lyrics. (laughs) Charlotte has her own bed, a mechanical one. My sleep problem is this. When I close my eyes, I keep visualizing my wife killing herself, more like the way she might try to kill herself since she's paralyzed from the shoulders down. The paralysis is quite temporary, though. Try convincing Charlotte of that. She slept on her side today, 
to fight the bed sores, and there was something about the way she stared at the bed's safety rail. The bed is voice-activated, so if she could somehow get her head between the bars of the safety rail, incline is all she'd have to say. As the bed powered up, she'd be choked in seconds. But my wife doesn't need an exotic exit strategy, not not when she's exacted a promise from me to help her do it when the time comes. I rise and I go to my wife. She's not listening to Nirvana yet. She saves it for when she needs it most, after midnight, when her nerves really start to crackle. I thought I heard a noise, I tell her, kind of a whisper. Short, choppy hair, frames her drawn face, skin faint as refrigerator light. I heard it too, she says. Next to her voice remote is a half-smoked joint. I light it and I hold it to her lips. How's the weather in there, I ask her. Windy, she says. Windy is better than hail or lightning or God forbid flooding, which is the sensation she felt when her lungs were just starting to work again. But there are different kinds of wind. I ask, windy like a whistle through the window screens or windy like the rattle of storm shutters? A strong breeze, she says, hissy, buffeting, like a microphone in the wind. Charlotte hates being stoned, but she says it quiets the inside of her. She has Guillain-Barre syndrome, a condition in which her immune system attacks the insulation around her nerves. When the brain sends signals to the body, the impulses ground out before they can be received. A billion nerves inside her send signals that go everywhere, nowhere. This is the ninth month, a month at the edge of the medical literature. It's a place where the doctors no longer feel qualified to tell us whether Charlotte's nerves will begin to regenerate or whether she'll be stuck like this forever. She exhales, coughing. Her right arm twitches, which means her brain has failed at telling her arm to rise and cover her cough. She tokes again. Through the smoke, she says, I'm worried. (laughs) What about, I ask, you? (laughs) You're worried about me? I want you to stop talking to the president, she says. It's time to accept reality. I try to be lighthearted. The president's the one who talks to me, I tell her. (laughs) And stop listening, she says. He's gone. When your time comes, you're supposed to fall silent. I nod, but she doesn't understand. Stuck in this bed, having sworn off television, she's probably the only person in America who didn't see the assassination. If she had beheld the look in the president's eyes when his life was taken, she'd understand why I talked to him late at night. If she could leave this room and feel the nation trying to grieve, she'd know why I reanimated the commander-in-chief and brought him back to life. Concerning my conversations with the president, I say, I'd just point out that you spend half your life listening to Nirvana, whose songs are by a guy who blew his brains out. Charlotte tilts her head and looks at me like I'm a stranger. Kurt Cobain took the pain of his life and made it into something that mattered. What did the president leave behind? Uncertainties, emptiness, a thousand rocks to overturn. She talks like that when she's stoned. I tap out the joint and I lift her headphones. Are you ready for your nirvana? I ask. But she glances at the window. That sound 
I hear it again, she says, and I go to the window and I peer out into darkness. It's a normal Palo Alto night, blue recycling bins, a raccoon digging in the community garden. And then I notice it right before my eyes. A small black drone is hovering. It's tiny servos swivel to regard me. Real quick, I snatch the drone out of the air and I pull it inside. I close the window and the curtains. And then I study the thing. Its shell is made of black foil, stretched over tiny struts like the bones of a bat's wing. Behind a propeller of clear cellophane, a tiny infrared engine throbs with warmth. Now will you listen to me, Charlotte says. Now will you stop it with this president business? It's too late for that, I tell her. And I release the drone. As if blind, it bumbles around the room. Is it autonomous? Has someone been operating it? Someone watching our house? Play music, Charlotte tells her voice remote. Closing her eyes, she waits for me to place the headphones on her ears where she will hear Kurt Cobain come to life once more. I wake later in the night. The drone has somehow turned itself on and is hovering above me, mapping my body with a beam of red light. Then a green laser strikes my forehead. And I know the drone is attempting to determine my emotions. I toss a sweater over the thing, dropping it to the floor. After making sure Charlotte's asleep, I pull out my eye projector, turn it on, and the president appears in three dimensions, his torso life-sized in an amber glow. He greets me with a smile. It's good to be back in Palo Alto, the president says. <laughs> you see, my algorithm has accessed the eye projector's GPS chip and searched the president's database for location references. This one came from a commencement address he gave at Stanford back when he was a senator. Mr. President, I say, <clears throat> I'm sorry to bother you again, but I have more questions. He looks into the distance contemplative. Shoot, he says. I move into his line of sight, but I can't quite get the president to look me in the eye. It's one of the design problems I ran across. <laughs> Did I make a mistake in creating you, I ask him, in releasing you to the world? My wife says that you're keeping people from mourning, that this you keeps us from accepting the fact that the real you is gone. The president rubs the stubble on his chin. Well, you can't put the genie back in the bottle, he says, <laughs> which is eerie. Because that's a line he had spoken on 60 Minutes, a moment when he expressed regret for legalizing drones for civilian use. <laughs> Do you know that I'm the one who made you? I ask him. We are all born free, he says, and no person may traffic in another. <laughs> you weren't born, I tell him. I wrote an algorithm based on the Linux operating kernel. You're an open source search engine married to a dialogue bot and a video compiler. My program scrubs the web and archives a person's images and video and data. Everything you say, you've said before. For the first time, the president falls silent. I ask, do you know that you're gone? That you've died? The president doesn't hesitate. The end of life is another kind of freedom, he says. And the assassination flashes in my eyes. I've seen the video so many times. The motorcade slowly crawls along while the president on foot parades past the barricaded crowds. Someone in the throng catches the president's eye. The president turns, lifts a hand in greeting, and then a bullet 
strikes him in the abdomen. The impact bends him forward. His eyes lift to confront the shooter. A look of recognition settles into the president's gaze of a person, of a truth, of something he's foreseen. He takes the second shot in the face. You can see the switch goes off. His limbs give and he's down. They put him on a machine for a few days, but the end had already come. I glance at Charlotte asleep. Mr. President, I whisper, did you and the First Lady ever talk about the worst case scenario? I wonder if the First Lady was the one who turned off his machine. The President smiles. The First Lady and I have a wonderful relationship. We share everything. But were there promises? Did you two make a plan? His voice lowers and becomes sonorous. Are you talking about the bonds of matrimony? I suppose so, I say. In this regard, he says, our only duty is to be of service in any way we can. (laughs) And my mind ponders the ways in which I might have to be of service to Charlotte. The president looks into the distance like a flag's waving there. I'm the president of the United States, he says, and I approve this message. (laughs) That's when I know our conversation is over. But... When I reach to turn off the eye projector, the president looks me squarely in the eye. My finger hesitates at the switch. Seek your inner resolve. Tells me. <laughs> that was wonderful. That was fantastic. And um, I like the world that you've created where we... Mourn the loss of our president. Um. <laughs> I did write that when we had a different president, and yeah. it was very distressing. Right. Uh, of course, anyone, any. I mean, if that happened to this president, we'd be shocked at, at how at how much that affected this nation, right. despite the, uh, our complicated feelings toward the president. But I was imagining a different president, you know, and it was really troubling. Right. It would be a different story if you wrote it today, I think, maybe. Um. I just did. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Oh. Are you me? No, I think so oh. already. <laughs> so I have a million questions that I want to ask you, and I will limit it to like 999,000 maybe um, to get you out of here on time. But we have a full house of writers here. Do you mind just like clapping if you're, you know what, clap... Raise your hand if you're not a writer. Okay. Okay, there's time. Okay, yeah, okay. Time. Okay, so mostly writers here. So um, I thought maybe we'd begin a little bit with process, but you just sparked a new question because your voice reading that story is completely different from your actual voice. And I was wondering, do you hear, I mean, down to the articulation, down to the accent, which was kind of like, Boston, Chicago, kind of? I don't know. A little something, maybe a new unimagined world. Mm-hmm. Um, do you hear that physical of a voice when you're writing, or, <clears throat> do, or does that come later as, as the story evolves? You know, um, like in graduate school, uh, my mentor was uh, a writer named Robert Olin Butler, mm-hmm. and um, he had actually uh, received his MFA in drama, mm-hmm. and he was just a dynamite writer. And... Um, uh, so I think there was that, and Tobias Wolf was one of my teachers too. And uh, I think there's a little bit of Tobias Wolf 
uh, when I read. I somehow, I think, unconsciously capture some of that. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, I read all my work al aloud. I scan my lines. I don't know how, if people know prosody anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I'm really, like, I'll, I'll put a caesura in the middle of the sentence and make the rhythm start to fall to emphasize something. So right. how it sounds matters uh, a lot to me. Right, right. So I have a lot of process questions yeah. here for you. My sources say <laughs> that you were a bit of a golden child during your PhD at University of Florida. Don't be modest. Um, and what set you <clears throat> apart was not just the quality of your writing, but the quantity. I heard that you would come into your workshops with a new story every week. And it was the, the way it was described to me, it was like you were at this buffet of ideas and you were just trying everything. And I find that really interesting because I think a lot of writers um, just sort of like worry the same bone over and over again for a decade or, or sometimes or a few years. And some of you are nodding. Um, so, <laughs> and it's okay. There's help right here. Um, so I was wondering, are you still the writer at the buffet or are you, are you the writer with the bone or some other food metaphor that you want to throw at us? <laughs> um, you know, if, if I could correct the record, uh, there was a writer in our PhD program, and I had an MFA, uh, but what do you do with that without a book? So I went to get a PhD only to just buy myself a few more years to get some air conditioning <laughs> um, and some benefits, and um, those turned out to be really valuable years. Mm -hmm. And when I went to be a professor at Stanford, they said, you don't have a PhD, do you? And I was like, you know what I do? <laughs> I'd kind of forgotten about it. Um, but, but, you know, there was a writer in our program named Tom Manorino, and we all recognized he was, he was the great talent of our program. And there were a couple of other writers there who just were magnificent. And uh, Tom killed himself. And, um, you know, there was another writer there, um, and she just kept, drafting and drafting and drafting and she would write her novel it was a, an amazing novel it would take her three years and then when she was done she would have a different set of concerns and then she would rewrite it you know and she would rewrite it and she never did finish that book because she didn't finish it you know she had the energy for five books so i mean there were a lot of really talented people there my favorite writer there uh never showed his work and never published you know, and he was truly writing for himself and didn't want to be in the world. So it's a strange combination of talent and labor and other attributes that maybe get your work into the world. Um, you know, uh, in my MFA program, I think maybe I played around a little too much. And when I went to do my Ph.D., I kind of made a vow that I wasn't going to date anyone that I didn't think I could fall in love with. Mm. And uh, though there were many fine people there, you know, I didn't feel that chemistry and I was very lonely. And I wrote a lot. Mm -hmm. And then one day I went to a party and um, there was this woman there. And I was like, who the hell is that? <laughs> you know, I was going to marry her. And I did. And, um, <laughs> and they were like, that's Stephanie. She's in the program. I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, she's been teaching in London this whole time. Mm -hmm. um, but that, you know, when you find parenthood, when you find a mate, then you find your true material in life. Mm -hmm. don't, you, don't you feel that? Like becoming a parent, don't you think that? When, I, when we were at Bradloaf, we all... She doesn't want me to ask her anything. When we were at Bradloaf, we all walked around with your collection under our arms. Uh, okay, let's, next question, please. Thank you. Uh, I hear you use spreadsheets. 
to mark no no this is these are really interesting I, that sounds boring but it's not um so you collect actual data about what works for you right do, yeah. on your spreadsheets and, you, and i, I want to know what the columns are because i want to do it mm-hmm. at home tonight and um so you i want to know like how do the spreadsheets work and and how what have you learned through this like self-examination of like i think you track how much you write where you write Can, t- tell me more well, um, that's true. Um, you know, a lot of people give uh, writing advice, which I think is great, but I think every writer um, has to find their own relationship with their work uh, to discover their own concerns. And those relationships evolve. And um, I just, once you start keeping a daily word count, just like even if on a page you write, oh, I did 200 words today, I did 1,200, whatever it is. Um, You just become more consistent. And when you have three kids, when you have obligations, when you work, like you have to make it. You you have to force yourself. And so, you know, one of my professors just, you know, he challenged me when I was a young writer to write a sentence a day for 100 days. (laughs) And you don't know how difficult that is. Like, like you get in bed and you're all comfy and you're about to close your eyes and you're like, oh, my God, (laughs) I have to get up. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, then you're going to write a paragraph if you're going to do that, at least. But I would, you know, I did for years um, just write, you know, the date. um, And um, I would uh, I would have my documents and then I would have like a buffer document, like a sandbox where I would compose. Mm -hmm. And only stuff that met standards at the end of the day would go into the story or the novel. Right. And so I would keep track of how much I generated that day. I would keep track of how much met standards. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would keep track of the time of day, uh, the location. And then I had a little box that would say um, hungover, uh, had a cold, you know, just notes. Uh, and that turned out to be very important. Kid, the kid's sick, something like that. Um, and, you know, that data mining. Mm-hmm. I mean, I thought I did my best work at a certain place, but I was wrong. Mm-hmm. I was wrong about myself. I just liked to work there. <laughs> and I, I did my most creative uh, word counts late at night. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, that didn't mean that it met standards, though. And the work that met standards I did in the morning at a certain place. And, uh, and when, I, when I devoted myself to those places at those times, my, my work just went up. Uh, because, you know, I was in, I was, did it for the, all of the Orphan Master's son so many years, and it was very difficult to find the time to, to compose that book, teaching classes. And, right. Three kids. Yeah. Life. Yeah. Life. Yeah. And I'm going to ask you about 40 questions about that soon. About so, life? About, about the Orphan Master's son. Sure. That may be life. Yeah. Maybe you'll help us with that. Um, so I was wondering if you'd do a little thought experiment with me. I'm in. Um, yeah. Um, your stories are, and novels are so tightly designed. And uh, one thing I find very interesting is the way writers think through the process. They get an idea and they think through the story until they actually have the, the finished product. So I'm kind of wondering, you know, you get an idea from wherever you get it. Maybe it's character conflict, plot, anecdote, whatever, you know, theme. And then how do you work out all the pieces from beginning to end? Right. Are you game? Yeah, sure. Do it. Now, do you want me to answer the question or are we going to do an experiment? That's that, well, I guess that's... You want to write a story together right <laughs> yeah, here? Yeah, I'm going to do it as you, as you talk. So right. go ahead. 
No, just kidding. I I'm often, <laughs> like, in my classes and students come to my office, I say, let's just write a story. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those initial decisions you make are just completely arbitrary. Mm-hmm. Pick a character, pick a place, pick a situation. We just start going. And, you know, uh, you write to discover. And when you're doing that, you start to invest yourself. And I always write to a place of, like, tension mm-hmm. where you start to care. Mm-hmm. And that student will come back later and they'll say, you know what, I thought about Sherry mm-hmm. the whole rest of that day. Someone who didn't exist like five minutes before. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, to, I, I, I feel like contemporary literary fiction is most in conversation with jazz. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the jazz musician has her tradition. She has her instrument. She's in conversation with other artists. Uh, she has fancies and melodies that she's into. And, um, you know, something begins. And you don't know where it's going to go. And it's a process of discovery. And I think that's where, like, true greatness really is, mm-hmm. um, finding something great. It's the reason there's a lot of bad jazz. <laughs> um, and um, it could be true of fiction, too. But if I discover where a story's going early, mm-hmm. uh, I would lose all interest. So is it the plot that makes you, you know, you know the plot and then you're like, I'm done? Or is it, what about the knowing piece? Is it knowing the characters too well? What, what makes you lose interest? I just write, I'd like to build worlds. Mm-hmm. So um, I like to make a world where uh, that's new to the reader, mm-hmm. that the, uh, puts the reader off balance. The reader can't bring his or her notions to it. Mm-hmm. And they have to take what might be an old story I'm telling, but in a very uncertain place, uh, seems new. Mm-hmm. And I just don't, I, I, I feel like, you know, when I was, um, you know, when we were younger, commercials were like, Calgon, it gets your clothes cleaner, right? <laughs> and the very simple messaging. Mm-hmm. And that moved on to, like, branding, like, this cool person likes this, therefore, right? But now it's narrative. And they've discovered that story is us, that we are made of story. And when people try to influence you now, and I'm talking about corporations, politicians, right? Um, Any group that wants something from you, they use story against you Mm -hmm. because it drops your defenses. And I feel like one of the side effects is that we have raised our defenses. And often when I read a story, I'll think, what does this story want from me? (laughs) Right? (laughs) And I didn't used to ask that question. What are you going to make me feel? Why, why did someone tell you? Right? And, and you have to get a person to yield. You have to get a reader to drop their defenses and to say, okay. Because, I mean, the magic of it is that you're asking someone to stop living their life. The most precious thing we have to live yours. An imagined one. You're asking so much of someone. And so I think a lot of the kind of conventions that we see these days, um, like Kelly Link or George Saunders, they want to kind of put you on your heels right at the beginning. And they're also writing in response to these things. Mm -hmm. And so there was a time when we used to say, you know, uh, we want people to suspend disbelief. But I want you to believe just wholeheartedly, right? And so uh, the answer to the question, I think... (laughs) Is that, you know, I just, um, 
you know, my wife was sick when I wrote that story. And um, a friend of mine killed himself uh, while she was sick. And I couldn't go to the funeral because there was a lot going on in our house. And so I had a dream that my friend came and visited me in the form of a drone. And I said, you know, I'm just going to write that down. And I just said, I just want to believe the drone came to the window. Mm-hmm. And I wrote like all night. And I was like, okay, I believe that drone. I made it my, my own drone. And I was like, I want to believe this woman's sick. Mm-hmm. You know, and I had to hear her talk. And at the end of that scene, I was like, okay. And, you know, I wanted to talk to my friends whom I knew well, um, who'd taken his life. And one thing a story can do is bring someone back to life. Mm -hmm. So I thought in this story, I'm going to bring him back to life and I want to talk to him. You know, I was mad uh, at myself too and I had questions and I thought, I'm going to put a machine in this story that will bring him back to life and I'm going to talk to my old friend Eric. Um, And I thought, okay, but I got to believe the machine. So I invented the machine. And I was like, who would you, if you invented a machine that scrubbed Facebook pages and YouTube videos and news clippings, who would have the most? I thought the president would. And so I just wrote that scene to believe the machine. Um, and, um, you know, like one step at a time, that's all I care about is just believing in the elements and thinking there was nothing. And then now there's a machine that brings the president to life. And that's like the greatest creative thrill ever, you know, and, you know, in the story, like really it was uh, it came to be about more about a husband finding ways to have physical and emotional intimacy with his wife after illness. Mm -hmm. And there's a sex scene. Um, It's like the unsexiest sex scene I've ever (laughs) read in my life. Yeah. 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 Good on (laughs) you. And, you know, like, when I finished that scene, I was like, God, that's what I had to write about. That's what this thing was about. I was like, I'm done. Mm -hmm. You know, and I showed it to my wife. And I said, do you think it's done? And she's like, no, you idiot. You've got (laughs) a machine that brings people back to life, and you've got a woman who needs Kurt Cobain. And I didn't even see that coming, you know. Mm. So she said, you got to bring Kurt Cobain to life at the end. And I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> and that was a real treat. Um, so often, like, I'm at a conference or an event or something, and someone will slip me their novel. Sometimes they wrap it really nicely and stuff. <laughs> um, and if they say, I don't have time to read much, maybe I'll read a little bit in the cab or something, but and decide if I want to go on. But if they say, oh, here's my book, how I outlined it for a year, it goes right into the bin. Mm-hmm. I don't want anything to do with that book. Because you want that sense of discovery through the, the pages. I can tell when a writer is, um, is in that true mode of discovery. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Don't we write to understand and to figure things out? Mm-hmm. When writers start to write to show what they know, So you like books that are a question, not an answer. Well, I mean, I, I can't reduce it that much, but I can just tell when, like, that writer had no idea that was about to happen. Right. And you can tell the crackle of that dialogue, and you can see turns happening, and 
you know, when my narrative gets a little out of control, I'm like, yeah. Mm. yeah. That makes me think of a short story you wrote called Interesting Facts. Mm -hmm. You ready for that one? Yeah, because sure. Because there's a lot of autofiction in that story. It's a story about told from the point of view of a wife of a the wife of her husband is a a Pulitzer Prize winning author who wrote a book about North. Korea. I mean, it's you call yourself out on that book um, pretty clearly, and I was wondering about the choice of writing, uh, writing in that way, and saying, you know, hey, I'm putting myself in in this story as, and not as the narrator, but as as a character. Yeah. Um, well, um, you know, my wife hates that story. Yeah. What makes her hate it? She's the she's well. Her role is the narrator, right? Yeah. Well, so, I mean. Maybe it'll just make sense if, if I tell it like this. You know, uh, my wife is happy and healthy. She swam the Alcatraz swim with my kids just, just recently. But I guess this was like six years ago. She was young, breast cancer, double mastectomy, chemotherapy. She's like, oh, my God, I'm in menopause. Fuck, you know. Sorry. There are kids here. I apologize. No, I think we were allowed to say and fuck so, as much as we want to. Um, you know, it, just, it was such a shock to her. I'll never forget, she woke up one morning and she said, you know what, I had a dream. I had a dream that I had a lump in my breast. And I said, ah, it's probably nothing. Mm -hmm. I said, it's probably just a weird dream. She says, I think I'm going to go to the doctor. Mm -hmm. So she knew on some level, right? And what a clod I am, right? Um, so anyway, my wife's a writer. And just after all this happened to her, she just would never talk about it. Not to her mom, not to my mom, not to her sisters, not to anyone. And um, I do feel just in general that um, that in publishing, and I think this is especially true for women writers, that publishers want that big uh, book club bestseller, and they want likable characters. And it doesn't have to be happy, but they want likable connectivity. And I do believe, like, there's a certain kind of book that's published that does not have the full spectrum of human emotion in it. Mm -hmm. And I see less of anger, mm -hmm. bitterness, jealousy, pettiness, stuff we all have, mm -hmm. I think is excised from a lot of our portraits. Um, and my wife was bitter and angry. Mm -hmm. And I was like, why don't you talk about it? She said, like, why don't you talk about it? <laughs> you know, it was like, you know, it was like a while. That happened for a long time. And, you know, I said, why don't you just write it? She was like, don't you tell me what to write. Mm. Don't ever tell me what to write. Mm. So we went to a reading one night. And at the reading, um, there was like a young, beautiful writer who was having her debut. You know, something we should all be happy for. And in the story, one of the plot elements is the wife dies of cancer conveniently. And then the husband has his new relationship afterwards. My wife was so mad about that. <laughs> she walked home, she just seethed about the disposable cancer wife. Mm -hmm. Or it's a car crash, right? right. And, um, you know, as we walked home, she went through every range of emotion that a human could have. And then the next morning, I just said to her, I said, look, if you started a story, if you started a story with a woman going to that reading and you just follow that couple home, I said it would all come out. And she said, we've talked about this. Mm -hmm. Don't ever tell me what to write. Mm 
But it started happening in my head. <laughs> oh. And I just was like, what would happen next, you know? Mm-hmm. And I wrote the story from her perspective. Mm-hmm. And I just couldn't. You know, we went through it too. Not what she went through, but we went through something as a family. Mm-hmm. And the kids went through it. And um, so it helped me a great deal mm-hmm. to write that story. Um, and then, you know, she is right. Uh, I wrote the story, and she recognized that it was a good story. Um, and she said, okay, I understand that you wrote that story. She felt like it outed her mm-hmm. as, um, as a woman who wasn't the same woman she was before. Mm-hmm. And um, so she said it was okay, but then I published it. Mm-hmm. And she was like, it was yours to write. I, I acknowledge your right to write it, but it wasn't yours to publish. Mm-hmm. And I think she's had a fair point there, mm. you know. Um, but I disagree. Mm. You know, I disagree. Well, that's really interesting. I think, you know, and you're going to make me cry now. Um, I think that's something that a lot of memoirists and autofiction writers can really relate to. They have this need for their own healing because cancer isn't something just that happens to the... The, you know the cancer victim, but it happens to the whole family, yeah. and they need to heal from it too. And um, but family members might not want you to to tell you know the truth according to you, or or to air that air or to air that experience. And I think a, a big part of um, of writing is publishing. Right, it's communicating with that audience. Mm-hmm. So, where is your responsibility as the artist? Is it to do what other people, you know, to respect what they're they're saying not to do, mm-hmm. or is it to follow that inner need to write what you you need to write, yeah. so you can move on as a person and as artist? Well, you know, I mean, I I I take her point. I really do. Um, but I just do. I just do what I do, and right. um, you know she does recognize that writing benefits the family. Um, but you know, eventually she was like, "She's like, you have to stop promoting that book." Uh, yeah. and so I just had to tell my publisher we have to end the tour. Right. She couldn't have me going out there. Time has passed. Right. You know, and and you know she's like, "Ah, pff, Adam and his stories." <laughs> Uh, but it was very real then. Mm-hmm. She felt very outed. And um, but here's the here's the thing: narrative is a meaning-making machine. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you're going to write about something, narrative is going to restore chronology, causality, language, voice, right? Memory, emotion, scene selection, structure, architecture, entry and exit points, mm-hmm. a balance of the past and present, uh, exposition, etc. And a story's working on all of these simultaneous levels. And they're, they're all accruing meaning. We're not even talking about scene. Uh, uh, significant detail, description, dialogue, internal axis, all of these things are happening at once. And the reader is just swept away with the artifice. And they do not see it functioning on all these levels. And a story can have a harmonic effect as they all converge and have a totality of effect at the end that can really knock you down. Right. And a story can store that emotion on a shelf uh, indefinitely. 
And when you read the story, it, the emotion is there. And so, um, and if you write to discover, and it means you're putting a machine in motion whose effect and power you can't reckon with when you begin it. Right. And, um, you know, that's the, the awesome thing and um, literally awesome mm. thing. Uh, but, you know, um, you just don't know the portrait it's going to make. That's right. all. You just don't know. And also, maybe, you know, if a person's upset about being portrayed at that time, they don't necessarily realize how much that portrayal is going to be- benefit other people in that situation later, you know? It's like you can only see your own situation at that time, but then later, they're maybe glad because it helps someone else get through their day and their life and their situation. I'll pass that along. <laughs> uh, Marriage counselor. I, well, no, I will, everybody. Eric, I, will, I will say this, that, um, you know, when you put a story in a magazine, Right. It's going to have a circulation of 800, you know. Was, when you put a story in a magazine, it's going to well, have a circulation of 800. Um, <laughs> in Harper's, I think Harper's circulation is almost 900,000, 800, yeah. something like that. And, um, you know, even though the Orphan Master's Son was in, translated into 35 languages, more people wrote me about that single story right. than about everything I'd ever written in my life. And I didn't expect that or see that coming in any way. Mm. And they were very uh, painful emails to read right. um, because people were responding with narrative mm. and um, engaging me. And uh, I can't even count how many, but I started printing them out and I made a stack uh, for my wife. Mm. And I said, you know, um, you know, you should just look at these. And she did read some of them and have to acknowledge that the story did connect. A lot of them were just like exactly what I was talking about, the anger. No one ever talks about being angry. Right. Right. That's always missing. And that's what I felt so much. And um, so, et cetera. Um, that, that was turned out to be something. I'm so conflicted, but I was very proud about that. You know. It's a masterful short story. It's absolutely beautiful. Well, thank you. Let's turn to a lighter topic. North Korea. North Korea. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> um, by the way, it's an amazing book. It really, if you, ha- if you haven't read it yet, you're, you haven't lived. So um, why don't you tell us a little bit about Pak Joon-do, the protagonist um, in The Orphan Master's Son. He's, I mean, he is an orphan, a kidnapper, a spy, a prisoner, a high-ranking official, then a torture victim, and an enemy of the state, and you are presumably none of those things. So how did you get so close to someone so different from yourself? Uh, what was the process of getting into his, um, his mind and his, his emotional state? Or was it, like you were saying earlier, it seems maybe was a product of the world building and then, and then the characterization came as a part of that or, or different, something? Yeah, um, you know, just how and why I wrote that book, I still don't have clear answers for, for myself. You know, uh, also like like who am I? It's like a question that still is there. Like I'm like a white dude from California, you know. And like, who am I to write a book about about um, a realm so far from myself? But uh, you know, I became curious about uh, the DPRK. I read a memoir 
um, by a man named Kang Chol Wan, who'd won like the triple crown of survival. He'd made it out of uh, Yodok, Camp 15. He made it out of North Korea, and then he made it out of China, which these days is the hardest of them all. And, um, and I was just like, oh my God, does this exist in the world today? And the fascinating thing was that, um, the, you know, the North Koreans have a twist on the gulag mm-hmm. that the Soviets never considered, and that's the family gulag. Mm-hmm. And so when you go to a Kwan Lee So, an irredeemable camp uh, there, and there, are no, there isn't another prison system. Like, people don't steal stereos in North Korea. They don't do crimes like that. The only prison system is the political system. And, uh, and so if you run afoul of the state, then you don't need a trial, and you don't need a sentence. Why don't you need a sentence? Because you're not coming out. They don't have to sentence you to a certain time. And uh, Kim Il-sung in the early 70s made his three generations rule, the weed by the roots rule, and that if someone in your family is suspected of a crime, they don't have to prove it because there's no trial, then three generations of your family go, usually like, you know, eight, ten people, your parents, your kids. And, um, you know, if you don't have enough family, your cousins go. If you don't have any family, your neighbors go. Because the point is terrorism, Right? And that's how the country transfers terror from the state to the individuals through the family. And if someone in the family knows that if any one of them messes up, they're all in jeopardy, well, then they start saying things like, you didn't bow deeply enough at the statues today, right? Mm -hmm. And they start enforcing the rules for self-preservation for all of them. Mm -hmm. So I just was like, my God, is this happening today? And I also discovered I didn't know that much about Korean history, and I have lots of Korean and Korean-American students and colleagues at Stanford, and uh, it's f- some of the greatest history I've ever read. Uh, then there's the Korean War, which is a war our nation fought, and we never talk about it. We made a comedy called MASH, right, which I remember watching as a kid, and I, don't know anything, I didn't know anything else about that war. And so I became an obsessive reader for a while, and I read lots and lots of books in my free, my free time. Um, but I was obsessed. And, you know, what I really wanted and what wasn't in the books were just simple human portraits. Because the books were about, like, economics and military issues and political issues. I was just like, how do you fall in love in North Korea? <laughs> like, how do, you meet, how do you meet the woman you love? Or what do you have for breakfast? What's your apartment look like? I was just curious. And I discovered those things weren't in books. They were online. Uh, and a lot of uh, Christian missionaries, aid workers, were interviewing defectors and putting them very raw in line. And I could find them, but I had to hunt them. And then I discovered this other thing, which is I started reading North Korean propaganda. <laughs> and the KCNA.net, which is their AP Newswire, I started reading that every morning. And I, for like every morning for six years, I read the Rodong Shinmun, which is the Workers' Party paper. Uh, which, if you want any homework, <laughs> go read the Rodong Shinmun. And um, I don't know if you know this, but Kim Jong-un has a blog <laughs> called The Supreme Leader's Daily Activities. It's a photo blog. <laughs> and you know what? The Washington Post doesn't have a journalist in North Korea taking these pictures. All the pictures in our media and in our newspapers come from his blog. That's where we get our images. And so 
oh my God, I started reading North Korean propaganda. And I just thought, like, I became obsessed with propaganda because it was ridiculous, funny, and sinister. And I like all those things. <laughs> and I just thought, like, I, I wrote a little story. It was called The Best North Korean Short Story of 2004. <laughs> and it was going to be an official story hailed as greatness. But as you read the propaganda, the idea was that you would start to see through the cracks toward a human, that it would escape somehow. And that voice stayed in the book, what turned into a novel in the loudspeaker voice. Oh, I love him. Right. Love him. And so it's a, it's a strong substance. There's only a little bit of it. And, um, but I thought, you know, maybe, maybe if I could just write a day in the life of a North Korean. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it sounds silly, but it's, it seemed deep to me at the time because I didn't think anyone would ever read this. Um, but I just, you know, the, uh, Jundo is a North Korean name, uh, male name, but it sounded like John Doe to me. Mm-hmm. And um, in our society, a John Doe is when you have the body but not the identity, mm-hmm. when there's a person but not the personality. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, I'm going to name him. Well, actually, in Korean, there's like a Honggil Dong. It means like Joe Blow or Joe Bag of Donuts. <laughs> so I first named him a Honggil Dong, but it, was very, it, it was, took a lot to type that over and over. <laughs> and so I just thought, you know, I'm going to make a placeholder name, and I'm going to write to figure out who this person is. Mm-hmm. And as I started, like, really researching North Korea um, and discovering the tunnels, the incursion tunnels, how they evade sanctions with the fishing boats, and all of these things... I did kind of feel like I have to, it was so mind blowing to me. I was like, I have to tour guide and show the reader all of this stuff. And like probably the biggest lies that one human would see all of these things in North Korea, Mm -hmm. because except for your mandatory military service, you don't travel outside, outside of your province. Right. Right. Uh, I'm torn between questions because I love that loudspeaker narrator so much. And and one thing I love about him is that, or her, it might be, I think it's a man, um, is that he there, he makes the gaslighting so evident. Um, and it's all, I know it's illegal to speak ironically in North right. Korea, but it's like he almost does. And it's, it's like he's telling the lie that tells the truth. And I thought, that's just what we do. You know, as writers, we, we tell the lie that tells the truth, unless you're a memoirist. And, um... And I thought, um, and then you might, you know, sneak in a few here and there, too. Uh, and I thought, you know, is, I, I kind of wondered, well, what's Adam's relationship with lies and truth? What's your relationship with lying, you know, as a fiction writer yeah. and, and also with truth and with regard to this book? How did this book help you with that relationship, maybe? I spoke ironically all over North Korea. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and yet, of course, these people's lives depend on things. And so they had to take everything I said literally. Mm. And um, so, but I, I could speak ironically with the people with me, and we could um, speak on another level of meaning um, that would be dangerous for a North Korean, and it would be dangerous for them to even acknowledge it. So it was very interesting. Um, you know, what's, you know, I was a journalism major. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll back up. When I was a kid, like, my father was a storyteller. My grandfathers were storytellers. My great-grandmother, who lived to be 107, uh, who was born in 1901 and had seen an entire century, was a great storyteller. Uh, they told tall tales. You know, she grew up in a covered wagon 
with as one of ten, you know. And <laughs> so, like, I just remember we would all take turns at the family gatherings, telling stories, and it would be like, "You tell it, no, you tell it." So one person would start it, another person would finish it. I, as I grew up, I saw the stories evolve. Because one of the truths was that you could hold court and that nobody would lose the attention. And so that meant they were refined over multiple tellings. Mm -hmm. And there would be a story that my grandfather would always tell the story about the six-foot catfish that lived in the Missouri River, which was below the house. And there were all these, um, my other grandfather had a story about how the um, mules, Megs and Jenny, would know when a tornado was coming. Like all these tall tales. Well, also with like very serious family stories and, and World War II stories. Mm-hmm. And no, we would shift from like mythology to personal to family identity stories. And no one ever said, was that real? You know, like that question of fiction and nonfiction was never there. Mm-hmm. And I never had that sense. sense. And I was a journalism major. And, um, oh, God, my journalism professor. <laughs> I was his cross to bear, you know, and he would come to me and he would say, you made these quotes up, didn't you? I would say, and now I would never do that. I would never do that. But I would. I would say, because I would cover like the city council meeting. And I would say, I knew the truth of what was going on in there, but they wouldn't talk about it. And he would say, you know, you just put the facts down and let the reader decide. You don't give them the truth, you give them the facts. Mm-hmm. And he, he told me, he said, if you want, to write, if you want truth, you go to fiction. Mm-hmm. And he said, look, I'll give you your degree if you promise not to be a journalist. <laughs> he was a really great guy. He taught me a lot about writing. And um, I did, I did go take, I did go take fiction. Um, and I, I have developed what I believe is our journalistic standards. Mm-hmm. And um, because once I started like writing about real people in real lives, that's when it ma- absolutely matters. But even your fiction has this very strong nonfiction component, and you research, I understand, so heavily in a, in a very different way from many writers. Um, like you do this more immersive research where you'll do ride-alongs and you'll interview people personally. I understand that um, for Hurricanes Anonymous, UPS sent you a brown uniform, oh, yeah, and great. you did a ride-along in the yeah. UPS truck so you could research. And I love that you do that because a lot of people see short stories as lesser and not needing research, but, um, but yours do require an enormous amount of research. So I'm wondering what you, um, what you get out of this kind of you know, person-to-person research that you can't get from the computer and from reading accounts and doing the, the research that many, many writers do where you kind of hide behind the internet mm-hmm. well I started writing this book about North Korea mm-hmm. and I don't know I just knew there was something of me there mm-hmm. and I also like read so many stories of people who were undergoing a, the kind of adversity that most of us don't have to go through or at least on that scale mm-hmm. and you know I think in our world we like the Sophie's Choice story if you know that novel mm-hmm. Uh, or that movie, and in which a human is defined by an impossible decision. And, you know, most of us don't have to make those decisions. And, like, one of the things I discovered in, like, researching North Korea is, like, every North Korean has to make an impossible decision, an inhuman decision. And, like, getting that wrong has really high stakes. Um, 
But like for a while, I was I was thinking, God, I'm really into this. You know, I was at Stanford, and one of you know one of the professors I really respected pulled me aside and he said, Adam, you've got to get tenure, and you've got to knock it off with this North Korea business and, and write a real novel. <laughs> You know? And I said, I know you're into this stuff, but like you've got to write a serious novel. And I, that threw me. Like I took a long walk because I respected this person. But there was something there that I that you know I had to get right. And it took me like a year and a half before I, f- I met my first North Korean. And um, he uh, was from North Hamyang Province. And he had been an orphan. And when he told me what it was like to be an orphan in North Korea, like, and, like, sometimes, you know, when you do research, you just, you, you, you use that stuff. But the most important thing is when you interview is that you ha- discover the emotional bar that you have to achieve. And the feeling of talking to that human was the feeling I had to get even if I didn't use any of that. But I did know, no matter what, my character was an orphan. Like one human life meant that much. And it was right. I, I think that that orphan concept uh, is true of the entire nation, right? Uh, which seems to be, claims to be the ultimate patriarchy is actually indifferent to every human living there. And so, like if I hadn't gone into the world and with my tape recorder and met someone, like, I would have started on a different foot, I think. Mm-hmm. A wrong one. Mm-hmm. So I really believe in, you know, when I wrote about Hurricane Rita, mm-hmm. uh, which was, most people don't know that, like, within 30 days of Hurricane Katrina, a worse hurricane hit Louisiana mm-hmm. called Hurricane Rita. And because of the flooding in New Orleans and the loss of life, so there, was a, there were good reasons there was that much attention on Katrina. Because of Katrina, there was much less loss of life with Rita because they took it seriously. Mm -hmm. But it is still the most powerful hurricane that ever strike the states from the Gulf. Mm -hmm. And uh, and all the people it affected in Calcasieu and Cameron Parish, they didn't get any attention. Mm -hmm. And I had lived, I had lived in that part of Louisiana. And I just was like, I'm going to go tell their stories. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know if it was going to be fiction or nonfiction. Sometimes I I write either. And I just, um, one of the things I read about was that um, when a lot of the um, service people fled, like they fled in New Orleans, the UPS drivers kept driving because they cared about their people. And some FedEx people too, not to pick delivery (laughs) favoritism. But, um, you know, I wrote wrote to the world headquarters in Atlanta and I said, I want to do some ride-alongs with your drivers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they put me in touch with um, Sharon Guillory, uh, in Calcasieu Parish, and she and I delivered 324 packages together in August. And I had a lot of respect for the job. And um, we would pull up to a house, and she would see, she worked late into the night to allow me to do this. She would say, go into that house, share, and you ask him what happened to his dog in the hurricane. And we would drive by a gas station. She would see a pickup she knew. She would say, you go ask that man about his wife. And I would walk into a gas station, because she was going to drive away in five minutes. And I would say, Mr. Boudreaux, I need to talk to you about my wife. Sharon Guillory sent me in here. And it's a way to harvest human narrative. Like, I wouldn't have had any of that with, without going right. there. And it turned out, I believe, that, you know, the bigger portrait was possible through fiction. Right. Yeah. Right. A lot of your fiction deals with sociopolitical 
issues, you know. Um, huh. And I was wondering, do you, do you believe that that is a responsibility of fiction is to raise awareness about all the messed up stuff in, that's going on in the world, or um, or can it, or is it broader than that, or what's your opinion? Yeah, I mean, I hear where you're coming from. I don't think about that stuff at all. Mm-hmm. I only want to tell stories. And, you know, I tell my students, like, the odds that you're going to be a good storyteller mm-hmm. and that you're going to have an important story to tell mm-hmm. are relatively low. <laughs> and if you're good at this, if you have a gift or if you care about it, you have a duty to tell the stories of others who, for whatever reason, mm-hmm. can't tell their own stories. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, when I was writing about North Korea, I was like, I am a white dude. I didn't speak Korean. Like, if I knew I was going to spend seven years writing a book about North Korea, the first thing I would have done is study Korean. I didn't really know what I was doing. And this question of who am I, and it was not just cultural. It was, which, but that was real. But, like, people who'd been hungry. I personally had never been hungry in that way, though hunger's real in America. And I had never been tortured. You know, and like these are very Until serious now. things. Until now. right now. <laughs> um, and so on one hand, I was like, who am I to do this? But as I wrote, I started thinking, this is the most voiceless place on the planet Earth. Mm-hmm. North Koreans don't even know what a book is, right? And when they escape, they have, they've been traumatized. They have survivor's guilt, right? And most of them just want to look forward, right, and start new lives. Um, and so I started thinking, why aren't more people lending their voices to North Korea? Mm-hmm. It's just so daunting. Right. And so whenever there's, I get curious about something, I go look for the narratives. And if I can't find them, that offends me. Mm-hmm. And um, when I lived in Germany, there was a torture museum there. Um, and I, tr- I looked up and down Germany to find a memoir of a Stasi officer so I could understand how normal people were swept up into this dark system. And how do you keep your humanity when that happens? Um, and it turned out there wasn't a memoir of a single Stasi officer, even though 20% of the country was government-affiliated in the information business. And I asked a lot of people, why aren't there books? And they're like, nobody wants to read them. No one wants to publish them. No one wants to hear from the bad guys. They don't want human portraits. Mm. And that just pissed me off so much mm. because that's such an important part. And so I had to write it, you know. Mm. And I have a friend um, who uh, is kind of dedicated, Jared's kind of dedicated part of his life to working with sex offenders in the Arizona prison system. And I'm a father you know, we all know about this issue. It's easier to think, oh, those people are monsters, they're evil. Uh, but here's this friend of mine and who has a, feels a calling from Christ to help them. And um, he runs groups inside of prisons. He helps people re-enter society. And he is always telling me, these are people. They're human. They're not monsters. Normal men can go down this path and lose their humanity in a certain way. And I think that's like, I think we all agree this is one of the worst crimes because it's a crime of life, an adult hurting a child in a sexual manner. Um, and I, for me, I guess I thought beforehand, like you might forfeit your humanity for doing that. Uh, but, you know, he really made me think about this. And 
I said, well, just give me a book I can read. And he said, outside of professional literature, he said, there's nothing. And I was like, nothing? He said, no. I'm like, not one priest has said, look, here's an accounting of what I did. Before I die, I just want to go with a clean, no. And so I just started writing. And I wanted to, you know, make a, a portrait of a human you could recognize that was still in a realm that you wouldn't want to visit. Right. That's a dark, dark place to go. So how do you get out of there alive? Well, that's the, that's the one story I never researched. Mm-hmm. I couldn't type anything into Google, you know. Right. I was really, I really, I was like, I'm putting nothing into Google. Um, and I didn't, I, I had a character who struggled with urges, uh, but I, I don't think I could even uh, I don't think I could do someone who actually hurt hurt kids. I don't think I could do it. Um, but I think we care about people who are struggling. I think we care about people who are isolated, and we care about people who've lost their voice and um, have nowhere to turn. Trapped characters, and so actually, all those great little uh, fictional maneuvers really worked against the reader. And I came to care about him a great deal, and I came to. You know, he had this big question, am I a good man or a bad man? And can I become a good man even though I have bad things in me? Mm-hmm. And I came to really care about that. Mm-hmm. It was not good for my part-time babysitting business. No. Um, the moms, over. <laughs> when I would do the pickups, like I could tell the mom who'd, who'd, who'd read that story. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Fiction, it says fiction. Yeah. I have time for one more questions, question before we open up. Um, and this is a more broad question. Yeah. Um, but I was just wondering, where do you see yourself in position with literature as a whole? What do you want to change about it? How, what's your mission? What do you want to affect in the greater scope of literature? Mm. I think uh, I'm pretty selfish. Mm-hmm. I just write to um, discover things myself, honestly, mm-hmm. and to just, uh, you know, believe something, just to really believe something. Mm-hmm. And I feel like in this world, a lot of it I have to make. I don't believe a lot of that world out there. I believe what I make, though, even though it's make-believe. Um, and I don't have any socio-political goals, really. Um, I am writing about resource scarcity, um, but that's just because that's what I'm obsessed with. <laughs> and so that is writing about uh, displacements, conflict, and all those things. Um, but I think anytime you're not coming from the most human of places, you're going to fail. And... Uh, I unfortunately know some novelists who are like, I'm going to resist through my novel. I'm going to face the dark truths of today, and I'm going to show Trump through my book. And so, <laughs> if you're writing one, I'm sure it's going to be the exception. Uh, but, you know, I'm afraid those books are all going to fail. Right. You know, and, you know, you look at, like, Vietnam, right? There was that huge Stanley Carnow tome, Vietnam, and I read that book, but... Can it compare to The Quiet American, mm-hmm. right? Or The Sympathizer? Mm-hmm. Or to um, Bobby Ann Mason's stories about civilians afterward? No, not to me. Mm-hmm. That's where the human t- truth is. So 
that's where I want to be. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, sure. Now, the other, the other week, someone asked me if it was true that Kim Jong-il's sushi chef used to get naked with the dear leader uh, every night and kiss him in the sauna. But the odds that I get that question here are probably low. <laughs> Maybe I'm going to ask. I'm the first one. Is that true? No, no, no. You've had your question. Okay, all right. <laughs> I think, is there a microphone traveling? Yes. Thank you. I, I was going to ask about the sushi chef, but I won't do that. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not a writer, but I'm a public defender, and I'm, I have a question about your um, child molester story because, yeah. you know, I know a lot of these people. They're my clients, right. and, and they're human beings, just like yeah. your friend said. And communicating that to judges and prosecutors is almost impossible, but your story just nailed those people, and I'm just yeah. wondering how, yeah, how, how you did that. Well, um, the story's called Dark Meadow. Um, it's, it's a challenging story, and um, I, don't, I don't know how uh, I wrote that story. I just was like, I knew that it had to do with technology, because all of that is about technology now. And I just like, had to believe that there was, a, there was a technological system in place. I had to believe that there was this guy um, I had to believe that these girls lived next door, and scene by scene, I had no idea what was going to happen or how dark the story would go, or whether if I would abandon it, you know. But there's so many vulnerable people in our society um, that I just, you know, I wanted a police officer in there. I wanted that voice, and I wanted someone who was truly dark to measure it. And there is a character in there who. You know, um, you know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't have a term for him. That's why I had to write the whole story, right? It's because you can't reduce people to these, you know, terms. But, but even that really dark guy, it wasn't. It was kind of not his fault in a way because he was born that way. Well, that's a question I had, and it's a question the character asks. Um, uh, he says, "You know, uh, are you are you born that way?" Is there just a circuit in your brain that makes you attracted to someone who's underage? Are you made that way through trauma? Are you rewired by trauma? Or do people choose? Do they go down a path that leads to something that they don't expect? My friend Jared says he thinks uh, the majority of, in his experience of many works with, go down a path voluntarily that of, of ever through porn needing ever increasing stimulation because they de are desensitizing themselves constantly and they need more shock and more extreme and they get themselves into, into zones that they don't even recognize because they've acclimated to certain, certain things. Um, uh, you know, I don't know, but the character's actively asking that question. Was I born this way? He was traumatized. Did that make me this way? And can I, if there is choice, can I choose not to be that way? Can I turn from this? Or is it me? Is there an end to it? Or does he have to hang himself from the tree that the other pedophile hung himself from? Mm. Sorry, dark. That's an important question. Thank you for, you know, um, uh, giving people full defense. Um, I don't have an answer. I just wrote the story. You know, you write it, and it makes something at the end. You're like, oh, my God. 
I don't even have words sometimes for the meaning. Because otherwise you wouldn't have to write a 500-page book if you could just summarize it, right? If you could just say it. Thank you. Hello. <laughs> um, in terms of discovery oh, and writing with discovery, I was wondering if you have... Um, and maybe for someone who's a little more structured in her approach, yeah. <laughs> um, if you have any suggestions or tips or strategies to be braver or more daring in, your, in one's approach. Yeah. Well, that's my way, right? And you've got to find your way. And I do know people who, you know, have completely different approaches. And my wife's a writer, too. I, you know, I can't move forward unless I... I build another piece of the bridge that I can stand upon. And that makes me very linear, very slow, uh, and I need research. And I write till I stop believing, and I go do research. I'll go find a human. I'll write until I feel like, ah, oh, that's wooden. I don't believe that. I need, I need information. I need human narrative that's going to help support that and span this bridge. And I don't know where it's going to go. It just heads off into the clouds, and then I find where it goes. But my wife, her way's totally different. And she's like, she'll write on chapter three, and she'll be like, oh, I know what they're going to say in chapter six. And then she'll go to chapter nine. And she writes, you know, from everywhere, very associatively. And, like, the way I describe her writing is, like, she, you skip a rock across the water, it goes tap, 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 and all those circles go out and meet one another in interesting patterns. And so what she learns from this part affects that part. And so, um, you know, I shared, like, one of the ways I discovered, like, when I was in the right place. Um, you know, I can talk all day about the things that work for me, you know, but actively journaling... I do do that. I actively write my problems down and my thoughts and think about and interrogate what I'm trying to do and try to figure it out. I think that's probably good for everyone. I'm sorry I don't have an answer. You know, when I hear these dudes come in, and it's mostly men, and they come in with their bromides. <laughs> well, Martin Amos once said, I just like... <laughs> I think it's an easy substitute for like the great unknown, for how hard it is. You know, to pitch a few pithy things out there. Could you talk about Parasites Like Us a little yeah. bit and um, what prompted that book? Oh, sure. Yeah, okay. Uh, Parasites Like Us is a book. Um, uh, it's about a, like a team of scholars who live on a university campus. And um, like the, head, the main guy is an anthropologist. And he has a student and his dissertation... <laughs> is to live on um, uh, paleolithic technology for a year. So he's quite a character. He won't touch anything that's been invented in the last 10,000 years. (laughs) Except for Doritos. Well, wait a minute. He gets the Doritos out of the machine with a special gig he's whittled himself. So he calls that foraging and (laughs) hunter-gathering. And so... He lives on a tent in the middle of campus and made of skins and he eats a lot of squirrel and he dumpster dives and he, he has this tool that he can get the Doritos out of the machine and he teaches, he's a grad student, but of course he can't write down evaluative things because he would have to touch a pen. 
So the other grad students are like, you scam artist. You know? <laughs> um, but when I, you know, I was a young writer. I fell in love with this book called A Good Scent from a Strange Mountain by Robert Olin Butler. It won the Pulitzer Prize when I was his student in, you know, 1993. Um, and uh, he was a linguist in Vietnam and he lived in uh, this place in rural Louisiana because there was a big Vietnamese ex expatriate community because they were fishermen in the Mekong Delta and the Sabine River was like that and so he lived there so he could live among them and speak Vietnamese with them and write his book about Vietnamese expats and I just thought he was a, a master and um, so uh, I went and studied there I, got a, I had to go to him and I had a night job at the university, and I would like, there was like continuing studies classes, and you know, it wasn't all online then. My job was to go to each class and register all the people who showed up and collect their money, right? And so I went to a class called flint napping. What's that? Can someone tell us? <laughs> Making stone blades, lithic blades, so arrow points and spear points. And, um, you know, uh, it was taught by this little uh, Jewish doctor, and he was the trauma surgeon at Lake Charles Memorial Hospital in Calcasieu Parish, and he was a surgeon, a heart surgery specialist. And, but in his spare time, he liked to make arrowheads and knives out of like obsidian and flint and chert. And I walked into the class, and ugh, it ha no one turned up for his class. <laughs> so I was going to have to go tell him it was canceled. But he saw me and said, huh. Oh, a student. I said, oh, my God. He said, I thought no one was going to come to my class. And I was like, so, so the class was just he and I. And we made, we made with, like, antlers and buckskin. We, I was not very good at it, but we chipped spear points and knives for 16 weeks together. Told me about his marriage had failed and all this stuff, and he had, and his marriage failed. He'd bought a Porsche, but that didn't make him happy. But what made him happy was that he would go to these things called nap-ins, and then he would make his own buckskin clothes. He would make his own tools, and there would be these other strange men, and they would meet in the woods in rural Louisiana in their own homemade stuff, and they would go hunting together, and. At the, on the last day, it was all over, and I had my little spear points. And we, anyway, we'd had a lot of conversation. Mostly I just listened to him complain about the hospital and stuff. He said, you want to see something? <laughs> and I said, yeah. <laughs> and so we went out into the parking lot. I will never forget it. There was this, you know, because we would go late making our little spearheads. And under like a cone of light with moths circling it was his red Porsche. And we went inside his Porsche and he said, I've got a little thing I keep in my Porsche. And he said, he told me, he had told me that the reason he got into this was because there was a certain procedure in which he would unwrap out of a piece of paper a flake of obsidian. And he said, obsidian edges at two microns and it's sharper than any scalpel on earth. And there was a procedure he had to use in which he used stone technology to make a certain kind of incision. 
And that got him thinking about stone blades. And so he said his dream in life was to do open heart surgery with Paleolithic technology. (laughs) And we're standing there at night in this empty parking lot. And he said, I know no one will ever let me do it. He, He said, unless I come across an acute case. And he said, and I'm ready. And he opened up this, you know, you open up the front of the Porsche. And he had this big buckskin thing. And we unrolled it across the hood. And he had this hand axe to split the breastplate. And he had this pair of antlers that were going to be his rib retractors. And he had made these reeds that he'd wrapped up. And these were going to clamp the vessels. And then he had all the blades. And he said... He said, when my moment comes, I'm ready. (laughs) And so, like, that human encounter, like, I left that place. And it took me a couple years before I wrote that book. But I never forgot, like, that another, and I've I've, I've been obsessed with primitive technologies ever since. Yeah. Mm. And that book is about primitive technologies. Right. And I understand... You have a new book coming out with primitive technologies. Oh, I just God. hijacked the Q&A. How much technology we've lost on the face of the earth. Mm-hmm. You know, my students just like they, it's like uh, Susan and Bill climbed down the hill and they walked past a beautiful line of shimmering trees, right? But they don't know a maple from a boxwood from an oak for their lives. And they, my students are right. Oh, they lay back before the stars, And he put his hand upon hers. They couldn't name a single constellation. We've lost our great knowledge, right? That every human on earth knew their constellations, right? And knew the flowers. My students don't even know the flowers. What's a dahlia? And what's a primrose? They have no, and they don't care. It's just background stuff. And I believe that if you don't know the names of the birds, well, they can disappear, can't they? And you don't notice them. And I believe the world is changing before our eyes. And one of the ways in which we're allowing it to happen is we don't even have a nomenclature to describe it. You know? And so I am writing a book uh, set, you know, um, you know, a thousand years ago. So there's a lot of language challenges. Um, and, and yet, celestial navigation, open ocean navigation, these people, I mean, we've got our phones and our computers, but they knew so much more than we. And I, I, one thing I have to do is try to learn, learn so much. And, you know, I was in, um, I gave a reading in Bangladesh two weeks ago. I took one of my kids with, and we went down to the um, Sunderbund mangroves, the, the last large mangrove left on the face of the earth. And, uh, you know, we were on the boat at night, and there were like Irrawaddy and Ganges river dolphins, and we saw tiger tracks. I mean, it was, it was filled, the, it was so wild, and it still existed so purely that it filled my heart. The wild, which we've lost so much. I mean, just insects. When I was a kid, there were bugs everywhere, and now there are not, and you know it. <laughs> they, grasshoppers are gone. 
and we don't even know the price that will be paid for that. And, you know, my son and I lay on the deck, you know, at night, and, like, he was like, okay, there's Cassiopeia, there's Orion rising, mm -hmm. and, you know, I was like, he knew, he's like, there's Altair, I was like, wow, he knows some stars. And, you know, um, our uh, Bangla guides, they didn't know the stars, and they lived in these mangroves. And they were like, well, how come you can't see that star? Or what about this star? And like my son kind of explained a couple basics to them. And I was like, um, I felt really great about that. Right. So before we thank Adam for coming here, I just want to say that his books are for sale in the lobby. And let's go for some empty shelves, okay? Buy there four. Go for four. Okay. Christmas. Um, yes, Hanukkah. Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, every holiday in this, you know, a book, a book, a holiday. Um, so please join me in thanking Adam for his generosity. Thank you. And no one asked about my Dennis Rodman story. You know, my Dennis Rodman story is world famous. Uh, okay. What about it? <laughs> It's a long, it's too long. We're here. I shouldn't have said that. No, no, no. You already. Um, I went to Japan, to Nagano, to interview Kim Jong il's sushi chef, who had uh, been the dear leader's chef for 18 years. He'd gone to North Korea of his own free will, but unfortunately, Kim Jong il loved his food, and then he became a captive. And that's all that, that's how that happens. And so Kim Jong-il loved uh, Fujimoto's food, Fujimoto-san, cooked for him every day. And Kim Jong-il loved him as like a personal pet uh, because um, Fujimoto was an outsider. He believed Kim Jong-il's version of things. He didn't know who to spread rumors to. And so Kim Jong-il confided everything to this funny little sushi chef who loved to drink and made great food. And... There were a couple of assassination attempts on Kim Jong-il, and uh, one of them uh, made him think there was uh, going to be an assassination attempt on his two sons who were with him. There was Kim Jong-nam from a previous marriage who was recently killed in Malaysia. But he had um, Kim Jong-chol and Kim Jong-un, the little tiger, they called him, was his nickname. And so uh, Kim Jong-il became uh, paranoid that someone was going to kill his kids, so he, he fired the nannies which you don't want to know what that word means in North Korea. And he said, uh, Fujimoto-san, you are going to watch the kids every day. And so Fujimoto-san had to wake up every morning, nurse his hangover, watch the kids for four hours, and start cooking, and serve dinner that night, and then drink until Kim Jong-il passed out. That was his entire life for years. And so at, he, um, he became the nanny of Kim Jong-un from the age of 8 to almost 18, which is when he went to Switzerland to private school in Bern. And I went to Bern and interviewed his teachers. Um, but anyway, uh, Fujimoto-san didn't have kids, and he did not know what to do with two kids. So he said, uh, you know, um, he called Kim Jong-il uh, 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 Super Shogun. He said, Super Shogun, uh, kids in North Korea like roller skates. So Kim Jong-il got roller skates. He said, Ki or kids in Japan have um, video games. K 
Kim Jong-il got them video games. He said, um, oh, kids in Japan have water parks. And if you look on the satellite photos, all 17 palaces in North Korea, their guest houses, have blue tubes behind them. And so he built them water parks for Fujimoto-san to take them to. Because he didn't know what to do with the kids. But he was, he was the nanny for almost 10 years. And then Fujimoto-san did like basketball. So he decided he was going to teach Kim Jong-un and Kim Jong-chol basketball. But the problem was, nobody knew what basketball was. So he had them build a basketball court at every palace. And Fujimoto-san, like I interviewed him forever, he would talk about trying to make the bodyguards like guard, right? And he would tell them what their positions were. And it was very awkward. So Fujimoto-san wrote to his sister in Nagano, Japan, and he said, you must send me videotapes, VHS tapes, of people playing basketball. So she videotaped the Chicago Bulls championship run from 1991. And when these tapes came, I mean, imagine like you don't really know what America is, but here you are in the United Center with Pippen, Rodman, Jordan, the most amazing basketball of our modern times. Kim Jong-il went crazy for these videos. They would watch them every single night. And that's all Kim Jong-un as a kid knew of America, were these adoring fans worshiping these figures. They all idolized these figures. And so you got to think from like his perspective, they tried to get Jordan first. They tried to get Pippin, but getting one of these human beings to come around the world, to bow down before him, was like his greatest achievement. And from his perspective, this was like a deeply meaningful thing, even though we didn't even know that Dennis Rodman was still alive. <laughs> so there's a very human side even to that story. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much. Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.